The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Unitarian Universalist composer Jason Shelton once said to me, we are what we sing. And I imagine he would say we are what we play and listen to, that we're influenced by the music we surround ourselves with, that we hum while we're going about our chores, that we create with and through our bodies, here in service, in the shower, rehearsing at home, wherever it happens. If he's right, then what does it mean for a community that sings and plays jazz? Because jazz feels like more than just a form of music. And I learned just how and began to unpack some of what that meant for me at my ordination. Some of you know the story because I told it recently when a musician I thought was just showing up late, though he actually never came, was running late. That day, the moment we were in of waiting, reminded me of a day in June in 1995, the day I was ordained. The church where I had done my internship was the esteemed first church in Boston, named because it was literally the first Unitarian church and later merged with the second Unitarian church in Boston. This was a church that had a silver communion cup that had come over with the 11 ships carrying 700 colonists who arrived on July 1st, 1630, with John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts, in possession of said communion cup, who would later found the church. And they came to build this holy city on a hill. So this church was part of the establishment in the biggest, most entrenched ways. It was a lovely group of human beings, but old school in so many threads or the feeling that you got. The minister who was my supervisor was in his 70s, just about to retire when I arrived, and he was an absolute sweetheart, but with some clear ideas about how church and community life happened, one of which was starting on time which wasn't helpful this particular day, I thought. Because I was an intern who also had, during my internship time, discovered the music of John Coltrane. Coltrane, at some point later in his life, had composed more and more religious-inspired pieces, and they were my favorites. They were pieces like Dear Lord and Wise One and Love Supreme. They were my sacred music and I wanted them played at my ordination. And so I got permission to find a quartet, some of whom gathered every year in Boston on Coltrane's birthday to play his music, and I paid for them to come, and I told them that they should set up in the space before the service and gave them time to rehearse when the sanctuary was clear of all other rehearsals. But about 45 minutes before the ordination, 
no one had arrived, and then 30 minutes before no one had arrived, and then 15 minutes before no one had arrived, and there were no cell phones, and no one in the group was answering their office phones or their home phones, and family and friends started to arrive, and classmates and Boston Brahmins, streets of whom in Boston were named after, they arrived, but there were no musicians arriving until one minute before service was about to begin officially. The piano player from the quartet showed up, and Reese held the line. Quartet or not, we were not going to keep people waiting, because that was rude. So an honorable five minutes after the hour, we began. With a piano prelude of one of Coltrane's pieces, we began. And no offense to Jonathan Silk and his instrument of choice, I was grateful that it was the pianist who arrived first and not the drummer. <laughs> and so the service began, and so it continued. But by the first musical interlude, the saxophonist had arrived. Whew. Now we were cooking. And then by the second musical interlude, the bass player had arrived. And then somehow, quietly, during the height of the ceremonies with ordination speeches and charges to the minister just to the right of the pulpit, somewhere before the postlude, the drummer arrived and set up his entire kit quietly. <laughs> and we ended in style. Wasn't what I'd planned, but it worked out and well enough. And then it was time to stand in the receiving line, and I was prepared, a bit ashamed and feeling awkward to answer all the questions, or I should say the same question that I was expected to be asked again and again, the one about what happened with the musicians. Except the question never came. It was like the first or the second person in line who said to me about the music, hey, that music was great. And I say, sort of nodded my head, trying not to betray my confusion. He said, the way it built from one piece to another until this incredible crescendo at the end, like the culmination of your call to ministry. I took a moment. My dad once told me when someone, when I was like 12 and would get awkward when someone would give me a compliment, he said, Vanessa, when someone gives you a compliment, whether, whatever, however awkward you feel, you just smile and say, thank you. <laughs> so I used that advice in this moment. I took a deep breath and thought about this strange twist of fate, and I said simply, thank you. Coltrane and that Boston Quartet taught me that day that jazz was more than just a form of music. It reminded me of all the ways in which in life, in creation, in community, we do not control things, first of all, not really. And actually how that can be a good thing sometimes that sets the stage for miracles and surprise. You see, that day I had set the whole framework, right? You heard about it. I'd picked the pieces, I'd laid out their order in the order of service, I'd called the musicians, I'd cut the check, I'd done all I could do, but the rest, it turned out, was something that was left up to that group, which in jazz is always the model. Asked to tell what he was about to play once, Miles Davis was reported to have said, I'll play it first and tell you what it is later. 
I don't know why he said that, but maybe because he was speaking to this reality that I'm describing. How even the band leader, perhaps, might choose the set and set the key and lift up chords, but at some point, they don't have control because in jazz, the band leader too, even Coltrane, had to turn the piece over to each of the musicians in turn for their solos. Let them carry the show. A person I once knew talked of a band in which he was, uh, of which he was part and how during a set, regularly band members would go out and have a cigarette or use the bathroom or grab something to eat and they would trust that the others would keep the set going without them. In some ways, the same reality was part of the music that day, right? The quartet trickling in. And there's so much in that reality to the form and the tradition of jazz. The mystery of the creative process and that surrender when you enter into it together. The trust that one or the other of you and all of you ultimately will carry the day, whether one of you is there in a moment or not. It's a beautiful metaphor for so much of life, for community. And there is this gorgeous freedom, I think, of or mix, I should say, of freedom and discipline in it that I want to hold up because in jazz, just like in community life, there are traditions, there are forms, there are conventions, there are hours and hours of practice and getting to know each other and getting to know the shared language of music as you understand it and want to make it. And then, then and only then, but then, the group is ready to lean into something else. And what folks lean into or how they name it is probably different. I think for Coltrane, it was God, a really big and expansive notion of God that he had. He wrote in the liner notes of A Love Supreme, thought waves, heat waves, Vibrations, all paths lead to God. The universe has many wonders. God breathes through us so completely, so gently, we hardly feel it. Yet it is our everything. Elation, elegance, exaltation, all from God. Thank you, God. Amen. I imagine other folks would call this spirit or the muse or some might call it the creative subconscious or tapping into the innovative mind. Whatever we call it though, there's this thing that we lean into that makes use of all the hard work we do in our lives, all the preparation, but seems to have this intelligence and generative power and direction all its own. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does this ring a bell? This thing that we're best advised to trust. Because not trusting it means clinging to a sense of control we don't really have over this life and this work together. And it means making all that life and work so much smaller and meaner than it needs to be or wants to be. So how does the musician stay alive to the music? 
And how do the people stay alive to what their calling is asking them to be? And how does community stay alive to the transcendent notion of what justice and compassion demands of them? And how do we continue to live together unleashing and trusting in each other's ability to co-create vibrant meaning? Maybe music teaches us. We are, after all, what we sing and what we listen to and what we play. Maybe jazz teaches us all the ways we practice the skills of abundant life and we prepare and we have disciplines, spiritual and professional and shared, but at some point we let this form of life open to recreation and new expression that we kind of make up together about how we worship and how we serve and who we serve and who we're accountable and how we're accountable to each other. And then this other form of this traditional life, the rug tossed, everything thrown up into the air, gives way to something new that speaks to the same deep old urge and force in the universe. Maybe that. That's at least what I started to pay attention to this long ago day in June, standing in line, newly ordained, learning even in that single hour a big lesson about what life of the spirit and life in community and life making music and meaning together might look like, that I didn't just like jazz, that maybe I needed to figure out how to live jazz. And that it meant that I might not know or like Miles Davis, need to pretend to know what it was that you and I, that we were making of the music of our shared life as it unfolded. But I could just trust in all of our preparations and practice and the traditions to be guardrails and all of that to be enough and then trust in the people and what we abandoned ourselves to that it was okay to start five minutes after the service, even if all the musicians you had invited weren't there, and it wasn't going just according to plan, and maybe what would happen would be far richer than anything I or we had planned for. That there was, that there is some magic and mystery to what always animates our lives together. And that was a good thing. That was the best part of it. So to just let the power, however we named it, each of us do its magic. And then just shake people's hands and say, thank you. <laughs> Life as pure jazz. I was asked to reflect today on uh, sort of what music is sacred to me, uh, so I gave it some thought. Uh, and I thought about a thing that was happening recently to me. I have found songs that I listened to in high school making their way back into my musical rotation. Uh, this could just be Spotify's fault, uh, but 
I, I know that I didn't ever decide to stop listening to those songs intentionally. I didn't stop liking the artists who made the soundtrack to my teenage years. As a teenager, my emotions uh, swung in a pendulum of, if I'm being honest, rage and sadness uh, were the two big ones. My taste in music reflected those things. Uh, I listened to bands like Veruca Salt, Nirvana, Hole, PJ Harvey, Nine Inch Nails, bands full of feedback and snarled lyrics, music that was perfect for brooding. One musician, though, stands out from the pack as especially important. Her name was Tori Amos. Uh, and if music had patron saints, Tori would be the patron saint of strange children. <laughs> it's a delight. Her pounding at the piano was alternately melancholic, powerful, and joyful. If other bands stayed strictly in one era of the pendulum, Tori was, for me, the full swing. She once said her music was what happened when pianos tried to be guitars. That's part of her appeal, the sort of pushing your instrument and yourself to be something that is not quite what anyone expects you to be. It's aspirational, but it doesn't lie about how difficult it can be to have and work towards your aspirations. But there was this too. I remember being young and listening to her alone in the basement, the sad notes of silent all these years washing over me, something external that matched what was going on inside my mind and body. To say I was depressed as a teenager would be an understatement. I wouldn't receive a clinical diagnosis for my mental health issues until my early 20s, so before I had talk therapy or medicine or any of the other treatment methods I've used over the years, I had music. It's so strange that listening to something can make you feel heard and seen. Feelings are complicated, tangles, tangled things, and words like disappointment, ecstasy, love, and apprehension are certainly useful to describe what is going on in our internal world, but music extends beyond that and adds more context to words. The internal becomes external. I felt so alone so very often, but when the speakers came on and the notes began to fill the room, my perspective could shift. I knew I wasn't the first person to feel this way. I knew I wasn't alone. <laughs> 